I have been teaching now for 27 years, and I've never had such a stressful time teaching as I have now. In the era of school shootings, every day is a a nervous wreck sometimes. A term I've been using a lot to describe how I'm feeling and other teachers and people who work in schools and students across America, we're all feeling like we are sitting ducks. That was a series of teachers speaking to PBS, and they may soon get some help from Congress. Senators behind a bipartisan gun safety proposal hope to have the framework ready for a vote soon. It would include funding for state red flag laws, mental health resources, and more school security. Republicans have pushed for hardening schools a lot in recent weeks. But what exactly does hardening schools involve? And does the strategy actually prevent shootings? I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Ongoing struggles in any of life's roles can lead to fatigue and feeling helpless. Prioritize yourself by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist. Be matched with your therapist within 48 hours and get 10% off your first month of online therapy at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. We're discussing school security and shootings. Joining us to talk about it is John Woodrow Cox, a reporter with The Washington Post. He's also the author of Children Under Fire, an American Crisis. John, welcome back. Thank you for having me again. Also with us is David Reedman. He's a founder of the K-12 School Shooting Database. It's a research project at the Center for Homeland Defense and Security. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. John, we don't know a lot about what will end up in a finalized version of the bipartisan proposal, but what do we know so far? Mostly that money is going to be allocated sort of in different directions, right? So they've talked about there will be a huge amount of money spent on things like mental health for schools um, and school security. So, uh, but we don't really know what that will look like, whether that will be the schools hardening in terms of technology, whether that will be more uh, resource officers. Um, there's just a lot that we uh, don't know around that. We, we do know that uh, there'll be some other sort of more concrete things like making it more difficult for people under the age of 21 uh, to buy uh, what we consider assault weapons uh, in this country. That'll, that'll be more difficult. It won't be impossible, but it will be more difficult. Uh, But in terms of the details, there's a lot yet to be seen. On Sunday, senators in the working group behind the proposal outlined their plan in a press release. The school security section says it, quote, invests in programs to help institute safety measures in and around primary and secondary schools, support school violence prevention efforts, and provide training to school personnel and students. David, again, that's pretty vague, but what types of things typically qualify as safety measures? Yeah, so really, school security can fall into uh, a number of different items that are either technological improvements to the school, personnel who are placed at the school, or physical things that are done to the building. And what's ideal is there are items that can apply to more than just a school shooter. They can apply to multiple different types of emergencies, things like a panic button or CCTV cameras, 
text reporting systems, a school resource officer. Uh, but there's also a lot of discussion about things that are very specific to only an external shooter trying to enter the school and trying to enter a classroom. And those are things like ballistic glass, ballistic doors, automatic uh, door locks, items like that. And then there's also um, a lot of really security theater, um, which exists in schools as well. And those are items that can be quickly purchased, but don't have a lot of utility in actually stopping an incident. So that's something like clear backpacks, um, bulletproof backpacks, adding alcoves and curves to the hallway, aesthetic things that don't actually increase safety, but they're very visible. Now, just this week, Republican Governor Kim Reynolds of Iowa announced $100 million in additional school safety funding for her state. But, John, give us an idea of how much money the school safety industry is worth. It's gigantic. So there was a a good bit of research done a few years ago that found that the industry was $2.7 billion a year. But that did not include resource officers, which would likely at least double that number. So, you know, we're probably at this stage talking about an industry that's, you know, six or seven billion dollars a year. So it's it's gigantic. And, you know, much of this money is being spent on things uh, for which there is no proof uh, that they work. Well, we'll hear from a superintendent in just a little bit here. We heard from a lot of teachers ahead of this conversation. And here are just a few of the safety plans they walked us through. Our school resource officer about a year ago, went through and did a full crisis walkthrough with all the teachers. She had cleared a path um, through a neighborhood to a secret location um, for us to evacuate in the case of any type of crisis. Our school does have single point entry. We have fencing all around. We have an SRO on campus with a gun. We have a um, a guardian, a person called a guardian, who carries a gun. There's fencing all around, which I think someone could climb the fence, of course, and jump over. And if someone drives onto campus and goes to the single point entry, if they're buzzed in, I think they can just shoot everybody in single point entry and advance onto the campus. We have police do frequent walkthroughs. We have physical barriers to our building, and we've changed our um, procedures and have frequent drills. David, briefly walk us through a typical school safety plan. What levels of security exist at most schools? Yeah, and and this is kind of one of the the fundamental problems in in a lot of the school security planning is that they're designed around keeping an intruder out of the school. And what we found from looking at hundreds of cases of gunfire at schools and deliberate attacks on schools is the person who commits the act is almost always a student, a former student, or somebody who's very familiar with the campus and allowed to be there. So things like a perimeter fence, um, adding bars to windows, um, adding various fortifications to keep people from driving up, even adding uh, doors that have different biometric sensors or locks, those things are all designed around keeping an unauthorized intruder away. Um, When the person is allowed to be on the campus, or a person who is not allowed to be on the campus but is very familiar with it, so they know things like the back door is left open when the trash is taken out, things like that, that person can easily get into the school. And then once that person is inside the school, unfortunately, many of these fortifications, if they're not thought out, can then be something that's very difficult for law enforcement to get around. For example, heavily fortified doors, you know, we saw the challenges after Uvalde of just having a locked door. Now, if there's a shooter who's able to enter a classroom, 
And that's where many school shootings start is actually inside the classroom because the person was allowed to be there. They pulled out the guns there. If that person is in a fortified classroom that has a ballistic door with a steel drop lock, now the entire security plan is now defeating the law enforcement response to it. So we really have to be realistic in understanding this is an insider threat and that threat can't be addressed by physical security alone. John, in the 2017 to 2018 school year, 61% of U.S. public schools reported having at least one security officer on campus. That's according to the National Center for Education Statistics. How has the number of security staff changed over time? Uh, it's just gone up and up. I mean, there, there, have, been, there have been isolated movements uh, around the country to um, force security officers, school, school resource officers out of schools because... Uh, you know, there's been there's a lot of debate over whether children should be policed in their own schools, which, if we're being honest, the vast majority of what a resource officer does has nothing to do with the school shooting. It, it would be uh, very unlikely in the course of a resource officer's career for them to actually encounter uh, a school shooter. So, uh, you know, I, I think um, we can safely say that the number has gone up, but there have been places, there have been districts where they have said, in fact, we, we don't want that. We want them. We want them out. We heard from a lot of you leading up to the show, including a lot of teachers. I currently work in a school. I'm a a middle school teacher. I also used to be an enlisted Marine. And I personally am profoundly uncomfortable with the idea of arming teachers in schools. Most teachers I know, whether or not they're comfortable handling a firearm, myself included, uh, definitely have no interest in bringing one into the building. Following the Columbine shootings in spring of 1999, which startled everyone, I began locking my classroom door, which elicited lots of disciplinary-type threats from my school administrators. So I began to carry a 380 caliber pistol in my briefcase, which I did until I left teaching at a public high school a number of years later. My school does a great job with um, our drills and our safety, but I don't believe anything can protect us from assault rifles. And I wish there was some way Republicans could see their way to actually being willing to protect children. Let's bring in one more guest. Tulsa Public Schools Superintendent Deborah Gist wrestles with questions surrounding school safety all the time in her job. And she joins us now. Superintendent Gist, welcome to the program. Thank you. So what are some of the current prevention and safety strategies at Tulsa Public Schools? The most important thing we can do, it isn't the only, but it is one that often gets overlooked, is prevention. And that is a key part of our effort in Tulsa Public Schools. And of course, we have so many of the same practices that have already been discussed on the show so far this morning. But prevention is hugely important. And it's everything from culture and climate in a school, relationships, relationships. Having the ability to intervene and provide support when there is a need or even a crisis and and importantly, having a way for people to share if they have a concern, if they heard someone say something or they saw a piece of writing or some drawing or they saw something on social media or something that caused them concern. And so we have a student designed process here in Tulsa called See, Hear, Share. And we have a um, a, a, a hotline that's staffed 24 seven in which people can call, email or text to share. And we encourage them to share 
even if they're not sure it's something that needs to be shared. Have you found that hotline to be successful in preventing violence? Well, certainly people have used it, and we have absolutely done uh, numerous threat assessments over the years. This has been in place for a number of years now. And um, and most of the time, the threat assessment um, is deemed to not be credible, and that is fine. We, we always encourage people to share no matter what. Um, and it has helped us also to really reinforce with students that you cannot say things uh, flippantly or in jest or um, a, a, a non-serious threat even. These are, these are very, very serious, and that has helped us to reduce the number of, of um, those kinds of uh, c- concerns that are shared. Um, but, but, you know, at times there, there is something that needs to be dealt with. How do you decide where school funds should be invested? Well, I mean, generally speaking, we have our board of education, our elected board of education works with the community. They develop a set of um, goals and priorities. Our team then works with the community to set a uh, set of strategies around those goals and priorities. And then we develop a budget that supports the, the action plan in total. Um, now, obviously, operationally, there are aspects of that that are um, more of like a given. Uh, we need to keep our um, buildings climate controlled and, and budget for for the ability to do that and transportation and fuel and things like that. And of course, school safety is a prominent part of that. And um, so we have, uh, you know, our efforts in place around school safety and and that's a part of our operational budget. Oklahoma Secretary of State, uh, Oklahoma Secretary of Education, rather, Ryan Walters, called for arming teachers in the state. And here's what he said the day after the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, where an 18-year-old shot and killed 19 students and two teachers. Teachers, administrators, school staff, absolutely, we should ensure that some of them are armed so that gunmen do not enter into our schools with the ability to, to inflict this kind of damage without being confronted with someone with a gun. This is not a gun issue. And what, what this is, is this is an issue about ensuring that individuals have the right to self-defense, that we aren't putting our teachers and our students in situations where they can't defend themselves. Gunmen should know that they will not be able to enter our schools, that we will have armed support at our schools. And that is crucial to ensure student safety in every school. Superintendent Gist, what are the current rules surrounding arming teachers in Oklahoma, and would you like to see them change? Um, Oklahoma does allow uh, for that, and we we do have very well-trained armed adults. Uh, We have a campus police system. Um, I think what I find really unfortunate about that aspect of the conversation is that it is deeply, deeply incomplete. Um, it's not well thought out and is actually quite frankly very sloppy. What we know about guns, there's not a lot of research about more guns in schools and safety, but there is about more guns in, in homes. And we know that in homes, uh, having more guns means that there's two times of a greater risk of, of injury or death than there would be if they were not there. So I think that you know, we have, and I believe it's very important for us to have a, a campus police system. We also have a very close relationship with the Tulsa Police Department and our first responders here. Um, but 
any conversation that is going to be about adding additional guns to schools um, requires a deep and careful analysis. And so my response to the Secretary of Education was very thorough. And I asked a set of questions that were just honestly off the top of my head, but they're deep and they're real. You know, are are the guns that the people in the school is going to have going to be semi-automatic? Will they have, will then they be expected to also wear um, armor? Um, you know, what kind of training will they receive? It's just much more complex than that. And so I find it really irresponsible. Oklahoma isn't the only state with officials pushing for arming teachers. We heard from Stephanie who emails, I'm a substitute teacher in Ohio where our governor recently signed legislation cutting the number of hours teachers need to train in order to carry a gun. The new requirements for training seem really low. I'd be interested in learning how long it takes for someone to really know how to handle a gun responsibly in an emergency situation. And David, uh, Stephanie's referring there to Republican Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio. He signed a law allowing teachers and staff to carry guns with just 24 hours of training. What does the research tell us about arming teachers and whether it's effective? So of 2,000 incidents that we've looked at back to 1970, there are not any examples where an armed teacher stopped the incident. But of those 2,000, just over 200, so 10%, are accidental uh, discharges in the school. And those accidental discharges include two years ago, a teacher who had a concealed weapon that was not authorized to be in the school who shot himself in the leg while teaching a class. There are three other accidents with teachers in the last five years. And the majority of those accidents involve either armed parents on the campus or school resource officers, because when you have a gun, um, accidents can happen with it. Um, Another piece to note on the armed teachers um, is that very highly trained law enforcement officers and looking at the after action reports um, from Las Vegas, from the Navy Yard, one of the biggest points of confusion is figuring out who's an undercover or a plainclothes police officer versus a responding officer and making sure that you don't accidentally shoot the wrong person. And in 2019, there was a shooting um, by two student attackers at the STEM school uh, just outside of Boulder, Colorado. And it was a very large campus. And on the other side of the campus, there was a school security officer who was armed and he saw a plainclothes police officer entering the school, thought that that officer was the active shooter, fired at the officer and ended up striking a student. So those are people who are trained specifically to carry weapons. Their job every day is to carry weapons. They have years of experience. And in these high stress situations, it's extraordinarily difficult to figure out who's the shooter and who's not. And putting teachers into a situation where it's an ancillary piece of their job to suddenly do that highest stress activity is really something that has the potential for a lot of catastrophic failures. So John, why are Republicans in particular doubling down on the idea of arming teachers? I mean, a lot of this is meant to uh, distract from the central issue, right? I mean, I have so much to say about that. The Secretary of Education's uh, comments there, you know, he says this isn't a, a gun a gun problem. Um, and of course, if it's not a gun problem, then you have to provide alternative solutions. You know, between, we, we have our own uh, a database of uh, school shootings. And one thing that we studied between 1999 and 2018 was whether school resource officers really made a difference. We know that in that period, there were at least uh, 68 schools that employed a police officer, security guard, where a school shooting occurred. 
in just two times, we found two examples of a resource officer who actually gunned down an active shooter. It's extraordinarily rare. It's extraordinarily rare. And it's like what the Marine said, that your caller said, that he's really uncomfortable with the idea of arming adults because we do know that the mere presence of a gun makes uh, a school or any environment really a more dangerous place. The statistics have consistently told us that. But if you're a conservative who doesn't want to maybe uh, uh, intrude on anyone's gun rights, you have to come up with alternative um, solutions. So time and again, this is, uh, this is where we go. This is where we go over and over. And there's just, uh, it's, it's frustrating because the, you know, the truth is, if this wasn't a gun problem, then every other developed nation would have school shootings as often as we do. We're the only country that has this many school shootings. America is not a uniquely evil place. We simply have far more guns, you know, nearly 400 million by some estimates, and we have a much harder time regulating them and, uh, and stopping them from falling into the wrong hands. That is the difference between America and every other country. So to say that this isn't a gun problem is simply uh, untrue, and it, and it doesn't get us any closer to solving it. Superintendent Gist, what are you hearing from teachers and students about what they want? I think teachers and students and parents all want the same thing. They want, to, they want to know that when they go to school in the morning, drop their children off, walk into the building with their bag as a teacher, that they can assume they will be safe, that that is a given, that they will be safe, and they can focus on the really important and wonderful and hard work of teaching and learning. And so our commitment to our teachers, our students, our families is to do everything we possibly can do to keep them safe. It's it's our highest priority, absolutely must be the case. And as I said, they can play a part in that by keeping their eyes and ears open and letting us know if they have any concerns about safety at all. And that is um, one of the most important things and it's something that they can actively do. That's Tulsa Public Schools Superintendent Deborah Gist. Superintendent Gist, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. Are schools less safe now than they were several decades ago? No, that was the interest in, in looking back to 1970 and then looking even uh, earlier than that. So the history of school policing is also more complicated. So seven of the 10 largest school districts uh, in the country have had school police back to the 1960s. The oldest, uh, 1947, is Los Angeles Schools Police. So there's been a need to police schools for quite a while because we've seen these indiscriminate attacks have occurred one or two times every year since 1970. And these elementary school attacks, uh, the first really significant attack occurred in 1979 at Cleveland Elementary in San Diego. And it was a woman who lived across the street from the school. She made uh, threats against the school. She had various mental health and drug abuse concerns. And one day she took a rifle and began firing out her bedroom window um, at the school. And she shot 11 people there. And when asked about it, she said she shot them because she didn't like the Mondays. And we saw these elementary school attacks play out through the 1980s. Um, in Stockton in 1988, there was a horrific school shooting with a semi-auto rifle and a gentleman who lit a van on fire next to the school to draw the students out and started firing at the elementary school's uh, students when they left. That led to the first uh, major gun legislation in California uh, to ban semi-auto rifles. Now we've seen these attacks kind of continue. Uh, we think of Columbine as a turning point 
But in 1998, a year before Columbine, two students committed a shooting in Jonesboro, Arkansas. They pulled the fire alarm, got students out of the school, fired from the tree line. Fortunately, they were using small caliber weapons and they caused 19 injuries um, and two deaths. But with different weapons, you know, that could have been very different. So unfortunately, we've seen this 50-year pattern where before the first R-rated movie, before the first violent video game, before we even carried cell phones, very similar attacks were taking place at schools. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Remember, to be a part of future conversations, download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. Let's get back to school security measures. And let's bring a new voice into the conversation. Harold Jordan is the Nationwide Education Equity Coordinator at ACLU Pennsylvania. Harold, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I want to focus in on this question of the presence of school resource officers. A 2021 study from the RAND Corporation found the presence of school resource officers led to more suspensions, expulsions, police referrals, and student arrests. What do we know about the impact school security measures have on student discipline? Well, we do know that having uh, school police officers tends to drive up the, the discipline rate, even of discipline that is administered by school officials, such as suspensions and expulsions. Uh, we know that it drives up the rates of student arrests, which have been on the rise uh, as of late, uh, actually over the last decade. Um, so as the number of school police officers has gone up, the number of arrests has gone up and the arrest rates have gone up. In fact, the U.S. Department of Education uh, put out information in June of 2021 indicating that over a two-year period of time, school-related arrests had gone up 5%, and what are called referrals to law enforcement had gone up 12%. And referrals to law enforcement is a broader category, of, including any time law enforcement was called to intervene with a student, regardless of outcome. So we know that it tends to drive that up. But when you look at it, at a more uh, detailed level, we, we also see that the overwhelming uh, proportion of student arrests are for things like fighting, marijuana possession, some other kinds of things, and little of it has to do with actually carrying a firearm or attempting to carry a firearm into schools. Um, we also know that it has a differential impact, and especially on black students, students of color generally, and uh, students with disabilities. So that in most states, the highest rates of arrest, of student arrest are black boys with disabilities uh, who tend not to be the school shooters. So I, I think we're in a situation where this use of, of, of police and schools is all out of whack. And uh, one of the harmful impacts on school safety is that it undermines the trust of young people and sometimes their parents and school officials. Well, Going back to, I, I want to go back to what the superintendent said. Um, one of the ways in which you uh, uh, avert sort of uh, school, serious school incidents is by having young people trust adults so that they come forward with information and tips. And when kids don't feel that they're being treated fairly by police and schools and others, they're less likely to come forward with information 
that could be helpful. Well, that RAND study I referred to also, as you said, found the presence of officers. It led to an uptick in absenteeism, especially among students with disabilities. How does the presence of school security staff impact actual learning? Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about schools. Well, there's some indication that it sort of changes the focus of school communities um, and it changes student attitudes and uh, student attitudes uh, about participating in school activities in a way that can be negative. Um, so, you know, there, there is a problem. There's also a problem of sort of resources. Using federal data, we found that 1.7 million students go to schools with a police officer but no guidance counselor. David, what research exists right now on the effectiveness of metal detectors or or any of these school security measures? Yeah, there's not any comprehensive research on the effectiveness of the metal detectors or even any data available about exactly where they are, when they're used, and how they're used. And that's the key piece. Of, uh, equipment like a metal detector can be added to a school. It's only effective if people are properly trained to use it and they have the procedures around using it. And if they don't, a situation would happen uh, like this past school year, a student walked through the metal detector, it beeped, he lifted up his pant leg and he was wearing an ankle monitor. And so the um, officer at the metal detector then waved him through and later on in the hallway, um, he shot a student during a dispute. So that's a student that understands the procedures at the school, knows that if the metal detector beeps and you show a piece of metal, then you can come through into the school. So it's, as uh, Harold said, it's not about the equipment that you add, it's about building the trust at the school. It's having somebody who's willing to say, I know there's a dispute between these students, I think somebody has a gun, and they trust somebody to tell them about it. We can't keep every gun out of a school with metal detectors because students that are there every day are gonna know you throw the gun on the roof, you take it through a back door, You take something metal with you. Uh, What we need to do is not have the students feel like they're trying to sneak something into prison, because as we know from the the correctional system, people get whatever they want in, you know, wherever they want it to be. So students need to feel safe in the school and they need to feel uh, that they're adults they trust to tell when there are problems. Uh, David, there's there's another fundamental question here, though, and that's why is the research and the data largely not there? Yeah, prior to 2018, there was not even a comprehensive data source on gunfire on school property. Uh, So this project came out of a threat assessment tool that I was working on a draft of, and we wanted to compare it to historic information to figure out which cases would have been averted with this better tool. We couldn't find comprehensive data. So for the last four years, the K-12 school shooting database is trying to document every type of gunfire on school property. A small part of that is planned attacks. The much larger piece is the systemic gun violence that's occurring in schools. The majority of these are disputes that are escalating into shootings because students are either lacking um, conflict resolution skills or they're not feeling safe in the school, which is why they're taking a gun into the building to try to protect themselves. That's David Reedman, the founder of the K-12 School Shooting Database. It's a research project at the Center for Homeland Defense and Security. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I want to turn to the types of preventative measures that do work according to the data we do have. And, and John, I'll come to you first. So the data is thin, right? The, the data that we do have, what we, what we have mostly is uh, 
you know, David and I have both spent uh, many, many years uh, built, you know, building databases and studying this thing. So we can look at what has worked before. You know, in 2018, we sent a survey to every school that had endured a shooting since, um, since Sandy Hook, because that was sort of a, a moment that prompted a huge number of schools to invest in school security. You know, what we found consistently, what they would say, and again, this is not research because there really isn't research, but they, what they would say often is building those deep relationships, giving students and adults a way to report things anonymously, that that was a really effective uh, tool, right? As basically being able to prevent a shooting before it occurs. I think that every school in America should have uh, an app or a call line, something like that, where a student, an adult, a teacher, someone can call and say, you know, uh, this student is having a hard time. They're posting on Snapchat or Twitter or, or Instagram that they have access to guns, that they're going to harm themselves, that they're going to shoot up the school. We know, you know, the, the, for example, the Sandy Hook Promise, that group offers. Uh, I believe it's called the Say Something app, and, and they make it available to schools for free. Every school should have that uh, for their students and their staff. That is something that should be readily available. We know, at least anecdotally, that it has stopped a great many students from harming themselves or potentially harming the school. There is an argument to be made, too, for um, being able to lock a door quickly, but there is nuance to that, too, right, because of what we've seen in, in uh, Uvalde, for example, where someone gets inside and then they lock the door and make it harder for police to get in to get there. But we, we also know there are a great many examples of shootings in schools where uh, students were protected because they were able to lock a door or barricade a door. Indiscriminate shooters are looking for easy targets. So typically what they will do is they'll go up, they'll try a door if it's locked, they might fire around through it, but typically what they're going to do is move on to the next. They're, they're looking for someone who is easy to target, and if uh, students can not be easy targets, if they can hide behind a locked door, that we know that that has saved lives. That's John Woodrow Cox. He's a reporter with The Washington Post. He's also the author of Children Under Fire, an American Crisis. Also with us today, Harold Jordan, the Nationwide Education Equity Coordinator at ACLU Pennsylvania. John, Harold, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producer was Paige Osborne with help from Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. Thanks for listening. This is 1A.